Now entering Nerdist.com. Today's episode was recorded at WonderCon in 2016. Enormous thanks to all of the panelists, to the hosts who ran the panels, who allowed me to record these. Also thanks to Katie and Aristotle at Nerdist, who ran around recording these for me. Uh, these are some really cool panels. I think you guys will enjoy them. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel, and it's hosted by Ben Blecker, where he gets a bunch of writers, and he asks them lots of questions, and it's starting now, so this will be the end of the theme. I think to get started, then, we can talk... Now's a good time to talk about getting your script read and whatnot because it is staffing season's coming up. And I wonder if one of you guys want to kind of talk us through a calendar year on how staffing works and kind of the glamorous part of getting staffed on the show. Like now it's coming up for staffing season, scripts are getting read. Um, it starts when your show gets picked up. Uh, immediately the phone will start ringing and emails will start coming in from agents, managers, uh, people you know, some guy you met someplace. Mm-hmm. Um, basically just asking you to read their scripts and, the, and, and that's the process that, and that takes the time from pickup all the way to when you make your, your final decision which is, I don't know, like six weeks maybe mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and um, you know, pilots are sold to the uh, studios from the studios to the networks and those uh, throughout the summer and the fall they're delivered around the holidays, you know, pilot shoot. Uh, they make their decisions January. This is on a network schedule. And then they um, shoot around now. They deliver in late April, early May. They decide what the fall pickup is going to be. So staffing season usually refers to the traditional network schedule. Okay, so around May, around Labor Day, uh, Memorial Day, that's when those rooms are staffing up for the summer, but with a lot of the work that we do is on cable, and that's, um, you know, year-round staffing, you know, so, so staffing season is not, uh, it used to be a really desperate time, because you feel like, you know, the chairs are going, and there's only so many chairs at the table, and I think we're lucky now that there's um, um, a lot more TV that's being staffed throughout the year, so it's not as frightening if you don't staff come June 1st. And um, guys, by the way, that was uh, Glenn Mazzara. I forgot to do introduction. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, Glenn Mazzara is the creator, executive producer, and showrunner of A&E's new series, Damien, based on the classic horror film. Mazzara was most recently showrunner for, two, for seasons two and three of The Walking Dead. The series earned him two Saturn Awards, a Bram Stoker Award, as oh, well as a okay. Writers Guild. That's okay. Just cut it. Let's get them out of it. I want to hear about them. Um, Mazar's body of work also includes The Shield, Max Bridges, and Life. I mean, we got, we got some experience up here. So uh, in addition to that, we have Richard Haddam, who has a BA in film production from the University of Southern California School of Cinema and Television. He has written numerous screenplays, including Under Siege 2, Dark Territory, and The Mothman Prophecies. He co-created the TV series Miracles, as well as The Gates, he has written and produced episodes of The Dead Zone and Supernatural. He also executive produced the 2006 Sci-Fi Channel miniseries event, The Lost Room, which is awesome. <laughs> Most recently, Richard has written on Grimm, Once Upon a Time in Wonderland, Witches of East End, and currently he is consulting producer on A&E's Damien and on yes. Freeform's Dead of Summer. <laughs> 
Richard wrote episode six, so if you don't like that, please just tweet directly to him. All notes go directly to him. You're going to love it. We also have uh, Meredith Averill, most recently served as the co-EP on Jane the Virgin. Previously, she was creator, executive producer, co-showrunner of the CW series Starcrossed. She also spent three seasons as writer-producer of CBS's The Good Wife. And she has written for Life on Mars, Happy Town, Samurai Girl, and CBS's upcoming summer mystery series, American Gothic. She is a two-time Golden Globe nominee and a three-time nominee of the Writers Guild Award as part of the writing team. And um, after that, we have uh, Natalie Chaitis. She was born in Los Angeles. She's executive producer of Sci-Fi's 12 Monkeys and Hunters, a new series. A new series she's producing with Gail Ann Hurd. Uh, she's best known for Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles, and, and Heroes. Ms. Chaitis is currently the only Mexican-American working as a showrunner in the U.S. TV market. Female. Female. Yes. Someone just told me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she's also known for her edgy female characters, hard-hitting action and genre-pushing storytelling. She is a proud parent to Julian, a math PhD student, and Chloe, lead singer of the band Kitten. In her spare time, she takes to the track as a member of California's premier roller derby league, LA Derby Girls. So these are our panelists. They're super smart and talented. And now that I've properly introduced them, we can continue with. <laughs> um, so let's get into some basic nuts and bolts of TV writing. Um, and let's say, I know there's two different types of writing. We can talk about specking a show and an original pilot. But for now, at, when we first start, let's talk about specking a show. What are some big mistakes, you, you know, nuts and bolts, like tone, character? What are you looking for in a spec script? Or do you guys not read spec scripts at all? And we should move on to the pilot part of the. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, th that's a good question because spec scripts based on existing shows are still important, but probably not as important as original pilots. It, it seems to have changed over the past, you know, 20 years. But um, I, I think if you're doing a spec script for an existing show, you're, you're looking to uh, really establish that you can write in the voice of that show. And that will, in general, uh, connote that you if you're hired on another show, can write in the voice of that show. But have something original, too, so they get a sense of who you are as a writer. And often for the writing programs that I saw a lot of hands go up for, they only take spec material. Again, for legal reasons, they won't read an original pilot. But I feel like now it started off like 10 years ago, they just want, people just wanted to read uh, specs. But now it's really swung, like you said, and you need to have like a full armament of... <laughs> You know, when you go to war, you need to have your pilot, you need to have your spec script. Mm -hmm. And what's the type of stuff that you're looking for? Like, when you were reading for Starcrossed and you would come across a script, what did you, you're like, this person is not even ready to be writing. Like, what are some big red flags for you, Meredith? Um, I think that uh, for Starcrossed, Starcrossed was a sci-fi show, but it also had other elements of other genres in it. So if someone gave me a, a, a sample that wasn't specifically sci-fi, it didn't ding them in my eyes. What I was really looking for when I was reading an original pilot was in those first ten pages, I wanted to know that you were bringing me into a very specific world that you had a handle on, that you were telling a really compelling story, 
that you had really specific, unique characters that felt like separate and had their own kind of voice. Um, and then, you know, then there's just sort of the structural things like, do you know what an act out is and what it should feel like? And that, oh my God, I'm going to want to come back for the next after the next commercial break. Um, how are your acts sort of structured? Uh, things like that. Um, I think it, those first ten pages are just really critical because you're, the showrunners are reading tons and tons of samples, and you really want to grab them early on. And Glenn and Natalie, um, you, you know, you have Damien. You've got Twelve Monkeys. Like, are you only reading horror scripts? Are you only reading scripts with time travel in them? You know, is it, or is it very similar to what Meredith's saying? You're like looking for someone who has a grasp. No, no I'm, I'm looking for a writer. You know, I, I would prefer somebody who is a fan of horror. I find sometimes if you, you know, are in a certain genre and somebody's not really a fan of that, they're not enthusiastic, they could be sort of cynical about, about things. And, and I want people who are excited about the material. So, um, so I, I'll read anything, you know, and I do read a lot of different scripts. So I, have, I have a lot... Um, um, a lot of thoughts on this topic, but um, why don't you want to answer if you? What uh, I mean, just I only read original scripts, and if I hire someone, I'll read three original scripts. So mm-hmm. you bet, I mean, it's usually a spec pilot uh, and a feature, and like an, I'll read prose, I'll read something else. Um, I don't like to read. I, I mean, I, I don't like to read specs of other shows, but that's just a personal thing. Um, and as far as do I only read genre? Like, I kind of try to cast the room. And so, for instance, with Twelve Monkeys, you need a, a Zach Stenson, an Ash Miller, or a Terry Mattel. So, like, you need someone who's just going to dig into the time travel stuff and argue it to the ground. But if you have a room full of those people, the room will just grind to a halting stop talking about paradoxes. So it's like you kind of need, you know, if you're doing like Sarah Connor, you want you want the, the female voice. So uh, you know, I'm looking first of all for a good writer, dialogue, the story moves, it's well it's well written. But beyond that. You know, life experience and who who that writer is in a person and what they bring to to that room and to those stories also matters a lot. And just to kind of reiterate, it sounds like Glenn, what you're talking about is you want to see the passion of that writer jump off the page. Like that's an important thing for you as a reader and a showrunner. Yeah, you know, what, I think what you want to showcase in in your scripts when you're writing is you want a certain level of craft, but you want to realize that. Most of the times, by the t- most of the scripts that are getting to us for consideration, already meet that certain level of craft. Okay, so so and and if you think about it, if you're on a writing staff, I don't really need you to write the scripts. I hope you do well writing the scripts, but we can all write the scripts for our shows. So what we're looking for are, is is someone who shows imagination, for someone who shows that they're an idea person. You know, if you're, um, um, you, you know, you're doing a time travel show, how many time travel stories have there been and how do you freshen that up? You know, how, I'm doing a horror show. You know, I want fresh ideas. So I want those ideas to be in, in, you know, on the page. And I think what happens is a lot of times people, when they're writing um, um, original material for a pilot, if I could just jump into this... Yeah. I think what happens is people think about, well, I'm going to set up a long-running story, and I'm kind of left with some nebulous ending or a cliffhanger instead of an entertaining 60 pages. What was nice 
was in the old days when I started, when, when TVs had cranks and stuff, you, you, um, um, if you wrote a spec of an existing show, it was kind of like a one-off, and it was just that particular episode. But now there's so much pressure on young writers to create a whole show. Well, where's it going to go? What's, and, and very often I'm reading a script... And I'm kind of left hanging, and if I speak to the writer, and I do talk to a lot of, a lot of um, young writers, they say, oh, well, at the end of season two, this is going to pay off. But that season two only exists in your head. So what, you, so what I suggest is just, like, treat it more as a really good short story that has, you know, things, you know, little strands that can be teased out, but... But don't leave me hanging because everyone's doing that. And you can beat your competition by delivering a tight, kick-ass story in 60 pages. Most of the competition is making the same mistakes over and over. And all you have to do is just muscle past them and just tell me a story where I go, that was a great script. That was a script where this happened. Get me that writer. You see, does that make sense? Yeah. And so you're talking about... Um and this is good to know, like, you want to stand out from the crowd, you're talking about turn, me, turn in a script to me that has a beginning, middle, and end. Like, yeah, you can have little, yeah. little threads to spin off like, for what series or whatever, things that interest you, but you need a solid, hard, kick-ass yeah, story. Let, let, if, if, I, um, yeah. I to, if I could give one quick example, okay? So I was speaking at a writer's group, and this woman was telling me about her pilot. And her pilot was, and I hope she's not in this room, so if she is, forgive me, but her pilot was that there was a guy who was in a military, you know, he was in Iraq, and his, his patrol gets killed by, you know, the bad guys or whatever, you know, they were in a fight, and everybody's killed except for him, it's sort of like the Lone Ranger, and he finds out that Blackwater, a private contractor, targeted his group and killed everybody. So he goes, and, and during the pilot, he, he, has, he goes to a senator. He asks her to shut down Blackwater. She says no. He says, I'm going to uh, get a job. He gets a job at Blackwater. And then he lays in wait to take down Blackwater during the course of the series. Okay? So I said, great. You've got an inciting incident. He takes action. He goes to the senator. She says no. He gets an obstacle. And then he gets a job and goes into a room and sits at a desk. That's not compelling. That might be good, but that's not going to get you a job. You see, if that was Kevin Spacey on House of Cards, he's going to you know, kill that senator. He's going to destroy Blackwater. He's awesome, and he does it again next week, and I want to watch him do it again every week. <laughs> That's the story that you want to show, not, you know, a person sitting at a desk waiting for a payoff on a fictional episode that I'm never going to read. That's not going to get you a job. So that's what I would say is, needs attention, and your I read a lot of these scripts. Your character is in motion and is making decisions to reach And a there's goal. a payoff, and, and he probably, if it's a character drama, he probably, you know, like a cable drama, he probably screws up his life in some way. So he does something, but his wife is like, I'm leaving you, so that's okay. You know, I mean, it writes itself. Come on. Uh, and Richard, do you want to jump in on that? I know you are a discerning reader yourself as well. Well, I'm, you know... I would say I agree with everything Glenn says, and this is something. This is something I'll say to people who are are writing an original piece. You know, don't be afraid. The temptation is to be clever and to be tricky, sometimes with narrative or, 
you'll get to the end of the script and realize, oh, this all takes place a thousand years in the future. You know, the, the, the problem sometimes is that with a script like that or a story like that, you can sort of, as you're reading it, feel that there is something missing. And the reader can get impatient. And pretty soon that's all they can think about is, okay, this isn't making sense. When is it going to make sense? And then on the second to last page, they go, oh, okay, I guess now it makes sense. But by then they've missed every other thing you've done. Um, so I would say do not feel enormous pressure to do a lot of clever stuff with, you know, suddenly everything shifts. And trust that you will do really great if you can write something that can make somebody cry or feel an emotion because the people who are going to be reading this first are those people. Typically, the, the assistants or the creative development people are people who... Have emotions? Um, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, they're in, this, you know, they're in the business because they went to a liberal arts college and they love reading Jane Austen. <laughs> and now they're reading... I mean, and... You know, tell me if you think I'm wrong, but I found that, that, that typically the people you're writing for at the very beginning at, at that level and even down the line are really interested in, oh my God, I got so sad. Oh my God, that broke my heart. I love those guys. Th that, that will get you far. Great. And, you know, Meredith, I had a question. You, we were both in Writers on the Verge, and we learned a lot of, you know, stuff about, like, get your, Nine char years ago. <laughs> get your character going and all that stuff. When you're looking, reading scripts, you know, the various levels, and a script moves you, are you compelled to be like, I need to meet this writer. Where did the story come from? Like, how oh, much is personal story? A hundred percent. I was thinking about that as Richard was talking. I think, you know... I and someone when you're writing pilots uh, for us as well, I find that you know the, the best stories are ones where you can find some kind of personal connection to them. And when you read a script and it's so clear that this person has some kind of connection to it, and then you meet with them, and my first question is always like, where where did this come from? Tell me. And you know, and to hear about like where, what they personally drew from in their own experience or their own family or their own background, where they drew drew that idea from, that's that's always really important to me. And those are always, I feel like, the best end up being the best spec pilots that I've read. Yeah, and. Um Speaking of that, I mean, voice is really important, right? And that's why you guys originally respond to material. It's because there's something that sparks to you emotionally, you know, you know, philosophically or something. How do you put that into action, like, in the hiring process? Like, how do you staff your room? Like, someone, let's say we're, we're talking lower level maybe for this room. Are you looking for, oh, the lower level person has to be this? You know, like, has to hit the emotional note or... You're just looking for a good writer at the lower level. I mean, I'll give you an example from Hunters. I um, hired some lower-level writers because one of them came out of the world of politics. And Hunters is set in D.C. It's governmental. It's, you know, terrorists. It's homeland with terrorists. So I needed someone that had a familiarity with that world. So there was, it's kind of like you said, there's a lot of really competent scripts. But these guys got the job because he had that experience and he brought that to the table. And sure enough, he was super useful in breaking um, a lot of politically themed stories. So that, that's just one example of how someone's background. And, 
And they had also written a script kind of like about a corrupt Latino L.A. mayor, which I was like, oh, all right. <laughs> so it was, it, was a, it was a smart script because it also played on who, who this writing team was, um, and it was different. It was dark, and it was re- really smart. So that was an example where everything just kind of li- lined up. They were good writers. They had the right background for the show, and they had the right material that showed they could put that background on the page. Um, and when you met with them, you were able to talk about you know, the script and your experience and you saw how that was necessary for you as the showrunner to have that in the room. Yeah. 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 And when, let's get into a, little, a couple questions then about, like, when you, the writer gets that meeting, when, she, you know, you love her script and you bring her in and you sit down and talk with her, what are the red flags? Like, wh- how do you blow a meeting? Or, or what is something that you really want to see? You know, like, these are good things to... to that's a good question. That's, why are you laughing? That's a good question. Okay, here's how you blow a meeting. <laughs> get out your pencils. Um, you could probably figure out how to blow a meeting on your own. Here's how to not blow a meeting. Um, the way you would not blow a meeting if you were going for a job at Carl's Jr. Show up. Be excited to be there. Smile. Pretend that you're excited. You know, I mean, that's what we're really looking for because it is awesome. I mean, if you've got some amazing background, that is fantastic. If you do not happen to have amazing background, then lean into uh, enthusiasm and lean into uh, presenting yourself as someone who is able to have a conversation and, you know, someone who you might want to be in a room with. I will tell you, I, I really, and this is just a personal thing, I don't like reading material, like anybody's material. It's like, oh, okay, they're doing a cop thing. Okay, great. But, but what I really care about is I'm going to have to be in a room with this person for months and months and months. And do I look forward to that? Or does that seem like something I don't want? And, and again, it's not like I don't like tall people. Just, you know, you, you can't guess for, you know, any specific idiosyncrasy someone is looking for. But be pleasant, be open, uh, and, and be enthusiastic. And I think that, you know, that's the most you can do. Yeah, I, I would say you want to go into a showrunner meeting and you want to think about your life and what are the skills that you've accrued that make sense to this person so that they could make the show. The job of the staff writer is to service the showrunner's vision. The showrunner is the person who's paid by the studio and the network to deliver the show. Okay, the, the showrunner is under a tremendous amount of pressure. They've got, they're dealing with stuff that the you know, cast or the writers don't even, you know, have to, you know, everyone just gets a little piece of the, the, the process. The showrunner has everything. So, you know, on Damien, my character is a, a, a war photographer, and there was this staff writer, this woman um, came in, and she said, well, I, I was a photographer. I was like, well, that's great. So, you know, we talked about that for a little bit. And then she started, she was enthusiastic about, you know, some of the religious themes in the show or some of this. And, and, and she wasn't, you know, telling me what I did wrong in the script. She was sort of saying, oh, well, here's an opportunity or where could this go? And I felt like this was someone who was going to get my game up in a writer's room, that this was someone I could play tennis with. This was someone who I could exchange ideas instead of her, you know, um, um, instead of me teaching her. A lot of times people come in and they, they want to be... Um, um, non-threatening and just say I'm only here to learn and and but you know I'm trying to make a show I, I'm not you know I would love to teach you but 
but I need somebody who's kind of, kind of going to help me make the show. So I need someone who's going to roll up their sleeves, and I want somebody who's, who's really um, enthusiastic about the material. I would also say that if you're going to meet with an established showrunner, please be aware of the shows that the showrunner has worked on. I, I met with a writer a couple of months ago. I have a giant shield poster right behind where I sit. She's like, oh, you were on The Shield? I never watched that show. And then, and then I was like, well, did you ever see Walking Dead? She goes, no, nah, I don't like zombies. So I was like, okay. So I was like, well, did you, did you read the Damien script? And like, no, nah, they didn't send it to me. So, I, so, so it was clear that this person was like, I was there to bring her along. Like, that's how the agent set the meeting. You know what I'm saying? But I, I, I wasn't feeling like, oh, she was going to, you know, be somebody who was going to be enthusiastic at 4 a.m. when we're trying to make a script work. You, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, so to sum up a little bit, we're looking for amazing material, like material that really resonates with you, mm -hmm. people who you want, who are pleasant to be in the room with, mm -hmm. to talk to, with great ideas, and it's their job to make your life easier, essentially, right? Like, in the room, like, they're yeah, there to provide you with ide ideas and fixes I mean, Richard, and no Richard complaints. was on my staff. I, I still haven't read any of Richard's scripts. I just loved hanging out with him. Yeah. Just shoot it without reading it. Literally, those are hours you'll never get back. <laughs> um, you know, it's funny. I was, I was listening to the last uh, panel, and... Uh, my buddy. And, um, you know, they were, and they were talking about staff writers and... Um, and sort of, you know, what you do when you're in the room at that lowest level. And, and, and I was thinking, you know, it is okay. No one expects a staff writer to save an episode. But sometimes the staff writer, well, really, everybody wants to. They want to be the person that goes, wait a second. What if we do it this way? And it was like, oh, my God, fixed it. All right, see you tomorrow. Goodbye. Um, it, it take a little bit of the pressure off yourself if you find yourself as a staff writer. Be there, you know, be willing to participate, but realize that if there's a silence in the room, you don't have to be the one to fill it necessarily. There are people getting paid more money than you who it is their responsibility to figure it out. Um, and, and, you know, again, try to learn as much as you can. Speak when it seems appropriate, and otherwise don't worry about not uh, saving things. Uh, an EP told me when I first started on a show that basically said, we make ten times what you make. So if for every ten pitches we do, if you can provide a pitch that's of value, you're doing your job, mm -hmm. like as a staff writer. Mm -hmm. hmm. And that seems to be falling in line with what you guys are talking about. We're going to open up to the floor. If you, anyone have questions? Right here in the front. Is that, um, uh, a question. I'm going to pilot right now that uh, has a procedure, it's a procedural. And I'm wondering, how much of, in, in your opinion, how much of the pilot should be the question, just to repeat, since he, there's no mic, you're working on a procedural, and how much of that should be in the A story, the B story? Right, and how much of it should be, how much of it should be procedural and character-based? How much procedural in your procedural and first character-based? Yeah. Right. I, I mean, I'll just jump in. I would say the procedural has fallen a little bit out of favor and to try to lean into character. This is just, this is just my opinion. Um, and I, I, A and B story, I mean, I don't know. That's like, yeah, I, you, I don't know how you could quantify that. Well, sometimes when you're writing a pilot, you put less in a pilot than you would a regular episode because you want 
you're establishing a tone, you're establishing new characters, so you want those things to breathe. So I would agree, lean into character. So for example, if, um, you know, in a procedural, they have to decide, do we go talk to the dead guy's wife or do we go to, you know, his cousin or something, right? Okay, so they have some choice. So I don't know if you have two partners. So as they, so Mulder and Scully, as they discuss what they're going to do, we learn who Mulder is through his, he's, we should do this, or this is what I think's going on, as they discuss the case, and then Scully has her point of view. And that's how you use the procedural beat to develop the character. So I would look yeah. for those moments and lean in so that your characters are as interesting and as original as possible. You know, hopefully they catch the guy. But as long as they're interesting, you yeah. have a shot there. And, and this is not, but this is not a moment-to-moment thing. This is a uh, conceptual thing. In other words, whatever procedure you've picked, uh, that procedure is just a method through which your character is going to reveal themselves to us. And you take the shield, for example. I don't know it well. I never watched it. <laughs> it's, it's quite good. It's quite good. But I, I've, I've heard people chat about it. And, and you know... You, you, what they wanted to do every week was reveal who that guy is and why he's different than the other cop show on the other channel. And so every bit of the procedure is designed to tease those things out. Um, so that's the key. Is, and that'll be the key every single week. It's like, well, why, why are we doing this case? What is this case going to tell us about this particular cop who is corrupt, a drunk, or out to save the world, or whatever that character concept happens to be um, and in, by approaching it that way you don't need to worry about percentages or how many pages or anything because it'll all be character and then all you got to do is come up with just the bare bones of a story to get us through. It's character like I'm sorry but you're to, to jump in real quick you can, go to the, you can go to the movies and watch things blown up for two and a half hours but TV really has become a writer's, you know, it's the writer's medium it's character driven that's why people tune in for five years to watch characters, whether it's S.H.I.E.L.D., you know, or a CW show. Like, it's all character stuff, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I would also say to try to find a model to kind of base, base it on, even though you're not writing a spec of a sp- specific show, if you look at the X-Files pilot or if you look at another sort of procedural character hybrid show pilot and study it and say, okay, well, these are sort of some character beats here, and then there's a procedural beat, but they kind of, you know, sort of also a character beat because they talked about, you know, their family life. Really study it and break it down like it's a science and, and kind of use that a little bit when you're talking, thinking about your own pilot as to where you want to maybe hit those things. Uh, other questions? Um, Again in the front? I'm just curious. I'll get back so the question is how to get not just get the job but continue to work and move up the ranks I think you um, you do move up the ranks as you gain experience the next time you're hired hopefully you're hired at a higher level so you start as a staff writer and, and you know if the show continues and they pick up your option. You could stay there for two, three, you know, as many years. And, and every year you would get a bump in salary, hopefully, and a bump in uh, title. That's how it happens. A lot of times that doesn't work that way. 
And then uh, particularly, you know, there's something called the diversity staff position, which is a different type of funding in which they try to um, studios and networks have a, an effort on particularly on network shows to um, get, um, you know, let's say people of color onto a staff. OK, there's a lot of problems with this type of position. OK, it doesn't work a lot of times. It does work a lot of times. It's something that the Writers Guild is looking at. And sometimes people rise to a certain position and then they are cut because then the funding runs out and then they're forced to repeat that position over. So, so you have some um, many people of color who have to repeat freshman year over and over on different shows. That's not fair and it's something that, we're, that the guild is looking at. But if it does work the way it's supposed to, you go from, you know, staff writer, story editor, executive story editor, co-producer, producer, supervising producer, co-EP, and then executive producer. And, and, and your responsibility grows, you know, if, and, and because you're more expensive. So if I'm hiring you as a producer, I expect you to be able to handle certain things that I would not expect of a staff writer. So that's, you know, it's about longevity, it's about your career, and hopefully you can string it together, you know, enough um, shows in a row that you can continue to, to grow. And a lot of times somebody hits the skids, you're, you miss a few staffing seasons, you're out of work, that happens to all of us, it happened to me for two years. So it's, it's, a, it's a tricky <laughs> career, you know. Um, I had a quick, I'm going to get you in the hat, but I had a quick question off that about diversity. Uh, I read this article in Scientific American about sex bias in lab work and how it skews results, and it got to me thinking about that in the writer's room as well, because since having been in the writer's room and knowing how you know shows get staffed, just kind of curious, um, you know, it seems like a diverse room can generate unique stories that can go on the air as opposed to a homogenous room, and that that's an opportunity for not just EPs, but for networks and studios to like hear some stories that can really attract a wider audience. And I'm just kind of curious if you could discuss a little of your thoughts on diversity in the room and how you go about it. Any of you? Um, I mean, I have pretty strong feelings about it, being like the only Latina, basically, showrunner, which is pretty pathetic, being that we're sitting here in Los Angeles. Um, thank you. I know. It's... it's um, I mean, look, you just have to do what you can. Like, you know, for instance, and it's all across the board. It's not just in writing. It's producing, um, you know, it's directing. It's behind the scenes. I shot in Melbourne, Australia. I told my extras casting we have to have 50% minority, like, extras. She goes, you do realize we're in Australia. <laughs> like, it's not going to be easy. That's what she said. But, um, you know, you just have to do your best when, when you're hiring and um, and also to look at, you know, for me, just to look out for people, man. Like, I just help people and read, read people and do stuff. And, and it really is it really is an issue for, 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 you know, the Writers Guild. And I, you know, the I will say in, in favor of the programs, I came through the fellowship program, the Disney fellowship program. I did the very first year of it, and it was fantastic. Like, I was fucking terrified of Hollywood. I had no idea what I was getting into. I didn't know what a... I didn't... I'd never written an episode. I'd never seen a, a television script. I'd held my agent, really? Like, there's scripts for television? Like, that's how green I was. So to go through those training programs, they absolutely opened the door for me, and I would not have my career if I did, which I'm obviously very capable of doing, and it just... It took that opportunity for, for, for me to get there. So, um, 
you know, so I obviously have strong feelings about it, and it's just we, you know, we're, we're doing what I can, and hopefully we can, you know, make some changes. And and for you guys, take advantage of every single thing that's out there. Almost every studio has a fellowship. Almost every network does. Look into this stuff. It'll take you three minutes on the internet to figure this out. And if you apply for any of them, or if any of them work for you, go ahead and apply. That is a way in. Use any way in you possibly can. And this is another one of them. Don't be shy. Jump in. Yeah, and, and if I, if I could ahead. say, so, so I, I do a lot of speaking on this, and I, I'm the, uh, Shonda and I are the co-chairs of the Diversity Advisory Group for the Guild, and, um, y- you know, uh, uh, Hollywood has not done a good job with diversity, and um, even though there are, um, it appears to, to be changing on TV staff, so it certainly looks like it's changing on um, on uh, a lot of casts, we see more casts are diversified, but you know there's the, the the diversity issue is a big issue. It's something that that the studios blame the showrunners, the showrunners blame the agencies, the agencies blame the networks, the networks blame the showrunners. Everyone's at fault, and what happens is they very often. The default is the white middle-aged male, and you know, as somebody who can benefit from that system, it's wrong. And we are doing a lot of outreach to our showrunners to say, when you are staffing, you need to not just staff a boys' club and then say, oh, we forgot diversity, and then hire one person to represent every other viewpoint in the world. That's not cool. It's not fair. It's not right. And. And, and it's an, uh, an uphill battle that people are you really do not know how to fix. So we've been, uh, you know, I think these programs are terrific. You know, there, there's problems with every program. But, you know, take advantage of that. Take advantage of things like this where people are, are discussing this. And I think it's a matter of having frank, honest painful conversations because when you bring this up people think you're saying they're racist they're sexist you are but 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 you know we all we all have our biases that we have to work together and 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 what better place to do that in a writer's room and to kind of you know work that out and then put it on screen and 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 affect real change so i'm hopeful about the situation but it's a very very complex problem so i don't want to just kind of you know not address it, and I'm glad sure. we're able to talk about it here. Yeah, great. Thanks, you guys. I appreciate that. Um, and the hat. Yes. <laughs> so the question's about the difference between working for network, cable, digital... I mean, I'll say one of the major differences is just order sizes. So basically, when you work on a network show, sometimes they'll buy 22 or they'll make 22 episodes and cables smaller. So that's always been a very big factor for me just in terms of quality of life because usually if you're working on a 13-episode or smaller order, you, you have a little more time off. In terms of the money, I mean, there used to be, it used to be like network was here and the cable was there, and, and that's all like, you know, I mean, Hulu's spending like 600 gazillion dollars, you know, on their brother. I think that that was the exact amount. Like, they've got like some fucking ungodly amount of money that they're putting into content. So, so the rules about that are, are different. And in terms of, I haven't actually worked at networks. So I can't actually speak to how the sort of notes process is. How you worked on Sarah? 
Oh, it, but it's been a while. I would say. I would say there's. A, it, it depends network to network. Each network has its own culture in terms of, of in terms of notes and in terms of input and in terms of how much they fuck with you. You know. Um, I, I've only worked in, in network, and uh, you guys tell me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that there's much more freedom in cable and that uh, in, on all of the network shows that I've worked on, even the ones that won Emmys, um, there, was, there were a lot of notes. Um, and sometimes they make it better and sometimes they don't, and sometimes you have to fight them. Um, it helps if you're the show that is Emmy Award nominated to be able to get to do what you want, but... Uh, there's definitely a more need for control, I, I felt, at, at the networks. But you guys can speak more to the difference between what, what it would be like on cable. And do you guys find that there's a, a, a ton of notes? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've, I've gotten a lot of uh, I mean, you'd be surprised. Um, but ultimately, it depends on how that network is trying to brand itself. You know, I'll, I'll, I did get a ton of notes on, on Damien. We were originally sold to Lifetime, go figure, and then really? we moved to yeah, yeah. Well, he's a wounded bad boy. So, so then, so then we moved over to A and E. One division of Fox merged with another. I had 19 different executives involved with my show over two years, telling me what I was doing wrong. Only one of them was a horror fan. So, so you get a lot of notes, and and it's a matter of, you know, listening and being respectful, and and but you know these people are intelligent and they're they're invested in the show doing well, and and it's so I haven't found that magic place that doesn't give notes. Um, my advice is if you're writing something and you're writing a sample, is to go ahead and write it for cable. And um, network will read cable stuff, uh, even really edgy stuff that they could yeah. never air, and they'll be thrilled. Oh my gosh, look how edgy you are. Come over here and write for Scorpion, you know? And we'll, we'll take all that stuff. Yeah, but that's okay. I mean, they're recognizing you're a great writer, and they're going to help you, you know, write the, the network product. Um, the, the main difference, I think, uh, in terms of the writing is that uh, the, the, the rate at which narrative must get uh, consumed in a network show or even a basic cable show is so immense. You're doing six acts. You've got to end every act on a big moment. You have to end the episode on a cliffhanger. You've got a teaser. You're looking at 41 minutes of filmed entertainment with seven narrative orgasms. And not all of us can regenerate that quickly, okay? Some of us can. <laughs> For the win. Sorry. Uh, other questions? Well, now. A white shirt. So, um, my question is, How to get the perfect script that you've written to one of you guys? It's, it's through connections. You know, it's either, you know, someone I trust, my, my assistant, a friend, any of these. You know, somebody needs to kind of vouch for you. You know, it's, it, it can't just come through, you know, a blind submission or whatever. I, I need to feel that someone else has looked at it. Otherwise, we would just be reading thousands of scripts, you know? So it needs to come through, you know, someone I trust. Do you live and work in Los Angeles? Uh, no. Okay. Oh, uh, move. 
Seriously. Um, I, I, I would say... <laughs> yeah. that's, that's for her. They just heard her. That's for, that's for her. That's why I asked. I was curious. Um, you, you, uh, the, the reason I say move and you want to be in Los Angeles is, you know, I used to think, and maybe some of you think, that, you know, if, uh, if I can just get my script to Shonda... She'll read it. She'll grab me, lift me over all the other people and place me at her side. And we together will, you know, which is a great fantasy, except that I haven't really heard of that happening a lot. But when I talk to people who are working as writers, typically what has happened is they have grown a core group of friends who are their peers, who are at their level. And one by one, those people become assistants in uh, agencies or at management companies or production companies or assistants within offices that are producing TV shows. And they know that their friends are also looking for those kinds of jobs, and those jobs come up fairly quickly. And bit by bit, you get drawn in at that level. Take classes. Go to USC. Go to UCLA. Take those classes. Meet the people there. Not the instructors. The students. These are the people that are going to bring you along, and those are the ones who are going to be sitting there when the guy next to them gets fired. And they're going to call you up and go, okay, the, uh, the, the writer's assistant just got canned. Get down here. And then this, this is a landline I'm holding. <laughs> for, those, for those of you. And, uh, and those are the connections you need. You don't need J.J. Abrams. You need the guy who's a production assistant on Person of Interest. Great, that's a good question. Over here. Let's talk about, a little bit about moving up from staff writer and moving up through some of the ranks and how that works. Um, this is a question, like, what if you are a writer's assistant or what if you are a script coordinator? Full disclosure, Natalie's my boss of Hunters, which her name's How would you go about, how do you go about moving up the ranks from those specific positions, those support staff roles, writer's assistant, script coordinator, without being the annoying terror that nobody wants to talk to in the hallways or Well, that's actually how I got started. That's how I got my first job. I was a showrunner's assistant on the second season of October Road uh, for these two writers. Thank you. (laughs) For uh, Josh Applebaum and Andre Nemec. And they, you know, when I interviewed with them, I I made sure to tell them, but I really want, I'll get you coffee, but what I really want to be is a TV writer. And I think you really want to be reminding people that along the the way. Uh, I worked for them for like... I want to say maybe four or five months and one day Andre came in and we were talking about something and he said oh, oh yeah if you, if, there's any, if you ever want me to read anything of yours and I was like as a matter of fact <laughs> and that's a big part of it is being, being ready and prepared with that sample for when someone offers and when someone offers to read your, your script take them up on it maybe they're just being polite but they've now offered and if this is someone who could potentially help you and I know it's hard too because I, I hear a lot of like oh it's not ready it's not ready and you know it's never going to be ready ready you know as writers we always want to go back and rewrite things a million times you have to know when it's time to just say 
okay, you know what, it's as good as I feel like it's going to get in this moment. Maybe you've had some friends read it and give you notes, which is great. Um, but no one to say, you know what, this per- it's time, I mean, this is my opportunity. And I did that, he read it, he liked it, and then eight months later when October Road got canceled, uh, they hired me as a staff writer on their next show. So that was, it was hugely important. And so if someone offers to, to read something of yours, always take them up on it. Yeah, and I, I think those positions are great. If you take those positions, though, when you go and interview for them, don't be afraid to ask the showrunner or who's hiring you if they're open to you eventually getting a freelance or moving on. There are showrunners who just see you as an assistant and don't you know, want those people to write. So why put in that time unless you really need the gig, okay? So if you have an opportunity to move up, and you're not only connecting with the showrunner, you're connecting with the number two, you're connecting with all the other producers. One of the things that's really been great on, on Damien is, you know, we were all a very tight bunch, and the, um, you know, assistants were very tight, and they recommended each other for jobs, and so, several of those people went on to other shows after we wrapped, and now they're getting, you know, a freelance here, and then they went, followed a showrunner elsewhere. So it's all about that networking. So, you know, speak up and, and, and be your own advocate. So you guys are talking about not just having the, the right material, or, you know, having material to show, but being in an environment where it's conducive to sharing that material. Mm-hmm. And you were saying that it's never, it's never going to be right, but, you know, it may not be right, but that person may read it and be like, you know what, this is okay, but here's how it could be better. Mm-hmm. And that could be the start of some relationship with that person as well. I mean, you've got to take the chance, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Other questions? And the, right there, yes, you in the blue shirt. Yeah. So this is about uh, support staff. This is a PA, a writer assistant type of question. Yeah. Okay. So it's not about staff, but um, it, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Those uh, definitely have hired people that don't have that experience. Um, on Twelve Monkeys, it was someone that Terry and Travis had met literally at a comic book store, had dr- driven out to LA, was living in her van, and had written the sci-fi no- like a sci- six hundred page sci-fi novel. Um, you know, we hired her as a PA. She she was terrific. So. Um, so the, the answer is yes, and it's usually, it, you, unfortunately, it is usually through someone you know, although literally this person was just at the same comic book store at the same time, so it was that, it was that random. It wasn't like nepotism or anything. Yeah, I, I have, the only position I feel needs experience is the script coordinator, okay, because they're interfacing with other departments in production, and I, I don't want, I want that to go well. But on Damien, you know, this woman came in and interviewed. So I very often, uh, you know, if, if you feel, I'll explain what the job is. If you feel you can do the job, great, we'll try it out if I, you know, I like you. So this woman came in and interviewed for the writer's assistant position on Damien. And we were talking and, and she mentioned that her husband created Cards Against Humanity and, and she writes all the vagina jokes for that. And I had never heard anyone say vagina in an interview before. So I hired her. And- 
and 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 she had worked for Julia Louise Dreyfus, and I'm a big fan of Julia Louise Dreyfus, but I never called Julia Louise Dreyfus, and so a month into working on the show, I said, oh my God, I never checked your references. I was just so impressed with your use of the word vagina. <laughs> Uh, you could be a crazy person. She said, I am. And, uh, but, you know, yeah. she was great. I loved her. I would definitely agree with them. Live in a van and use the word vagina. <laughs> That's now been said four times on this panel. We have time uh, for two more questions. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned earlier when you were reviewing scripts that you don't like to be left in sort of a It has to be satisfying, okay? If, if I feel like it's all set up for a future story or a future payoff, that's problematic for me. I want to feel, I want to feel something. I don't want to be left with many questions, okay? So think about it that way. So it's great if it's like, oh, my God, now what happens next? That's great. If that, that's exciting and... You know, we all do that type of storytelling, and that's certainly valuable. And if you can showcase that, terrific. But if it's just like, hmm, I'm not really sure where it goes. I'm not really sure what this is. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to think. And if it's too nebulous, you know, um, that's great. If you have those type of scripts, that's fine. I'm not saying don't write those scripts. But you should be writing many scripts, and you should also show that you can deliver a story within 60 pages. I, I will say I want to add one more thing about your, your original pilot is like swing for the fences with your idea. Like if you have an idea where you're like, that's really fucked up and crazy, like write that script because those scripts I remember. Like there was this cow apocalypse script that I love and she got staffed on um, the HBO, HBO show. By, uh, cow apocalypse? Leftovers. Leftovers. <laughs> then this other guy wrote this show about the Neanderthals versus the humans. It was all in their language. Like it was, did you read that script? I remember that script. I looked up that script like recently. Mm -hmm. And so those ones that were really outside the box, like even if they don't get the job, I remember those scripts years later. And I go back to those writers because they were so unique and that they, they were so unusual and specific um, that they really, they really stuck with me. So if you have an idea for a world that, that you want to dig into that you think is too far out it probably is <laughs> yeah and, and part of that is also make sure your writing is visual and cinematic there are too many times that you know we all want to write grounded material but if there's nothing visually compelling about it then it doesn't really burrow into the it's easy for me to remember a picture okay so you know you can remember oh the you know, the, the, the Neanderthals running around or, you know what I mean? Something visual about it that people will remember. That's easier than just, oh, they had a case and they went from here to here to here. You, you know what I'm saying? So you, want, you want to leave something that can burrow within the person's memory. Great. Uh, one more question over here. I mean, that's a great question. I, I, I was actually expecting uh, Glenn to jump in, but here, here's the nice thing. 
you know, typically these people get those jobs because they are fans. They're fans of television and they're fans of storytelling. And the more that that comes across and the more genuine their interest is, the the more I think we tend to listen to them when they speak. And it it feels like, well, you're, you're coming at this from the place of a fan, someone who loves this genre, someone who loves this sort of thing. And I, I can hear that better than notes that begin with the words, I'm afraid, fill in the blank. I'm afraid, we're worried. But the fact of the matter is, that really is mostly where they're coming from now more than ever. Um, because n- no one knows what's working now or why. And so it's much easier to avoid things than to uh, boldly swing for the fences and say, you know what, this does scare me. I'm not quite sure I understand it, but I know I'm interested, so let's go for it. But, I mean, good, good for your kid. I wish them the best of luck. But, but if there's, if there's a, a note that opens up an opportunity or says, well, I'm not understanding this. What are you going for? And it leads you to more story. A lot of times the notes can pull back. You know, a lot of times, you know, notes can be, you know, the audience is not going to get this. I've been told, you know, I I was told by an executive, um, I said, um, the audience will get this. They're they're smart. And uh, somebody told me, well, I don't trust the audience. And I said, I do. You know, and you and and you put stuff out there, and you expect people, especially in cable, people watch TV closely now. You know, even though everybody's watching with three screens, they do watch things closely and they do pay attention. And especially in a genre, they want, you know, something interesting and compelling. And and so to kind of, you know, to to dumb it down or whatever is not a good note to say. Well, we're fearful or we're not going to get it or we don't want the audience to think that. You know, it's it's you don't want to manipulate or lead the audience you want to kind of create as rich a a story as possible so and you can feel those when the notes are either coming from trying to genuinely make something better or when they're fearful Mm -hmm. you know great um you guys we're at the end of our hour please give a big round of applause for our showrunners at ep they're awesome and thanks so much for being out here the last uh last hour of the convention tonight thanks so much thank you Now leaving Nerdist.com.